Well, good morning. It is always a joy to get to be together. So we are pleased to be here. It's wonderful to get to have my family with me as well. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We will be finishing off this theological section of the book. Galatians chapter 4. We'll read from verse 12 through chapter 5, verse 1. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. But not merely to understand, but also to be changed by your word this morning. So now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 2016, Barton Swain's book, The Speechwriter, came out. This is part of the Amazon description of that book. The Swain paints a portrait of a boss so principled he'd rather sweat than use state money to pay for air conditioning. So oblivious, he'd rather wear the same stained shirt for two weeks. So egotistical, he'd belittle his staffers to make himself feel better. And so self-absorbed, he never once apologized to his staff for making his administration the laughingstock of the country. On the surface, this is a story of one politician's rise and fall. But in the end, it's a story about us, the very real people who want to believe in our leaders and must learn to survive with broken hearts. If you have not read that book, I highly recommend it. 
Barton Swain is a brilliant author. It is funny. It is beautifully written. Uh, and particularly in seasons of political turmoil, uh, it, it's good medicine to have a good laugh. So I, I highly recommend The Speechwriter by Barton Swain. To further entice you, let me give you a little bit more. Swain tells of his receiving a PhD in English from the uh, University of Edinburgh. And like most people with a PhD in English, he says, I had tons of specialized knowledge, but no job offers. And one day he began to read a column by his state governor <clears throat> in his home state of South Carolina. He says the article began with very poor and confusing prose. So Swain sent him a resume and a cover letter saying something like, I don't know that much about state politics, but I know how to write, and you need a writer. After a few weeks, Swain was in the office, and they offered him a job. So he writes this. When I started working for the governor, I didn't do any writing for a week or two. Mainly, I just sat behind my desk trying to look busy. At some point, the press secretary, Aaron, told me to read through the op-ed book. Uh, this was a giant three-ring binder of photocopies of the governor's published writings over the previous four years, his first administration. He says, reading the op-ed book would help me to get used to the governor's voice, he said. I spent a few hours reading through these pieces, and it worried me that I did not hear much of a voice. Uh, what I heard was more like a cough or a humming of a bad melody with most of the notes sharp. He said, one sentence stands out in my ministry. So he's quoting the governor. This is important not only because I think it ought to be a first order of business, but because it makes common sense. As you might imagine, uh, it's an incredibly difficult thing for a PhD in English to write bad English. Uh, but at one point, he was on the verge of losing his job, so his wife tells him, you have got to start writing poorly or you're going to get fired. And he still just couldn't bring himself to do it. He said what finally changed it for him, what finally allowed him to enter into the governor's voice, was he transcribed hundreds of hours of letters which the governor had spoke into a recorder. And he said that was finally the thing that kind of grabbed him. Well, why do I begin with this book recommendation other than it's a great book? Well, because of this. That last point reveals something helpful for our passage. See, it took Swain months of working and reading and listening over and over again to the voice of the governor, to his style, to, to find it. Well, Paul's argument in Galatians 3 and 4 can be summarized as this. It's a how-to-read-the-Bible argument. He's teaching the Galatians how they are to read the Bible. Or to put more clearly, that there's a way of reading the Old Testament which was happening in Galatia, which was taking true truths. But because it was taking them out of context and misapplying them, Christians in those churches were undoing the gospel itself. So in our passage, then, Paul concludes this two-chapter theological argument with basically saying that if we misread the Old Testament, we will skew the gospel. We will no longer be children of freedom, but children of bondage and slavery. So with that, we will walk through this passage with the following three points. We have the Apostle Paul's entreaty in verses 12 through 16, the false teacher's flattery in verse 17 through 20, and the covenantal allegory in 21 through 31. So one more time. The Apostle Paul's entreaty, the false teacher's flattery, and the covenantal allegory. Look again at verses 12 through 16 with me. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify that 
If possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Well, Paul begins verse 12 here with the first imperative, the first command of the letter. And it is, become as I am. Now, the verse is a bit confusing at first. He says, become as I am, for I have become as you are. Uh, That seems a little bit circular, unless you understand that Paul is speaking to the Gentiles there in Galatia. See, he said last week under that passage that the Jews, you were born under the law. You were raised in it. But the Gentiles are adopted sons. And so he says to them, become as I am. That is, I became like you Gentiles who were free from the Mosaic law. You were not underneath the Mosaic law. You were Gentiles. I became like you. So become like me. Stay free from the law. Don't go back into bondage. But that is what they were seeking to do. They're seeking to go back and resubmit themselves, or rather submit themselves for the first time to the Mosaic Covenant, because Gentiles weren't a part of the Mosaic Covenant. Well, this ties into this overarching theme of the chapter. And Alan unpacked it last week, talking about the first verses here, where Paul uses this illustration of a child and an heir. He says, until, until the child reaches that set age of maturity and inheritance, he's basically like a servant, like a slave. He, he has no authority. He has no power. He's, he's under guardians and rulers. But at that, at that age of freedom, then now that child is inheritor and he gets to be ruler as well. So in other words, they are no longer slaves. They've been adopted into that status of freedom. They, they didn't go through that. So don't go back. This first command then is clear. Keep living in sonship. Keep living in this freedom that you have as adopted sons and daughters of the king. Or think of it this way. Who in the world, once they have lived through childhood and then received their inheritance, would then say, I just want to go back to not having access to my inheritance at all? That's what Paul's saying. Don't do that. Become as I am. I, I already became like you and became free from those regulations and stipulations, from the slavery. He calls it bondage to the law. And Paul illustrates this entreaty by reminding them of of how much they had welcomed him when he showed up there. He said, you know, you did me no wrong. And then he tells about how he was sick when he arrived there. Now, there's different theories as to what was wrong with Paul. One theory is that maybe he had gotten malaria. And the cure for malaria in the ancient days was to go up into the hills, uh, to get away from the mosquitoes, uh, to kind of dry out, as it were, cool off. Uh, that's, that's a possibility. Uh, another is that there's kind of an old fable or legend that, that Paul had really bad eyes. It, it's possible. He does end this letter with, see what big letters I'm writing to you with. We don't know for sure. At the very least, his comment, you would have be, been willing to gouge out your eyes. It's just a way of talking about their love for him. They're saying, Paul's saying, you, you loved me so much. You welcomed me so much. Even when I was suffering, you would have gouged out your, given me your own eyes if you could have. And he reminds them, you know, you, you receive me as an angel, even as Christ himself. He's just reminding them, why has it changed? So he gives that reminder because then he says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? See, that's what he's doing. He, he reminds them of their deep affection and love for each other to press. How has it changed? How am I now your enemy by telling you the truth? They'd shown such love for him. Why had it changed? Well, Paul says, because I preached the truth to you. See, any parent understands this reality. Uh, If if you've had young children, you've experienced their wrath by telling them the truth. Two simple words. Bedtime has unleashed furies of wrath of young children because the parents told the child the truth. It's bedtime. So oftentimes we have this reaction. In fact, we see the same thing in Jesus' ministry as well. In Matthew 13, Jesus speaks in parables. 
His disciples come to him and say, well, why are you teaching in parables, Jesus? And he says, because the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you, but not to them. And then he goes on to explain, what I'm doing by teaching in parables is I'm fulfilling the prophecy given to Isaiah, back in Isaiah 6, where, where Isaiah was told, preach so that their hearts will be hardened. So what do you do? Do you preach untruth? <laughs> well, no. You preach the truth, but it's the truth that hardens them. That's what you see by telling a little child, it's bedtime. <laughs> that truth sometimes will harden them <laughs> in their rebellion, and their turning away from the truth. Well, that's what Paul says here. How is it that I gave you the truth, and the truth has hardened you? You loved me so well. Why are you now hardened? My message hasn't changed. It's the truth of the gospel. So Christians, we need to hear Paul's words here as a reminder for us. See, friends, every time you open your Bible, you're confronted with the truth. Every time you sit under the preached word, you're confronted with the truth. And you're always offered two responses. And only two responses. You can respond in admiration and awe and worship of the God who has spoken to us. Or you can respond in disbelief. See, there's no neutrality. Either God is king and Jesus is reigning or he's not. Every time you read the Bible, you're reading the claim of God's authority on your life. So you either submit to it or you don't. So friends, may we be a people who come to this text and seek to be changed by it. That come to this text and submit our lives to it. Rather than using this book to, to fit, or find a way to fit it into what we prefer, may it be a book that changes us. Now this idea of the Bible being used to support our preferences actually leads us to our second point, the false teacher's flattery. Look with me again at verses 17 through 20. All right. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. See, we learn here that the Galatians had changed their mind towards Paul, as we said, and the reason was because there was false teachers that were troubling them. Paul explains, yeah, these false teachers are making much of you, uh, but they're making much of you, so you will make much of them. Uh, maybe you've met some people like this. They're incredibly complimentary and encouraging, but they also expect those compliments and encouragements to be reciprocated. If you don't flatter them as much as they flatter you, then all of a sudden they're disinterested or maybe even get harsh with you. Well, that's what was going on with these false teachers here. In fact, in the original, the word that Paul uses here is where we get our word zeal. So you could kind of translate this more literally. Don't get me wrong, he says. They are zealous for you, but they're zealous for you because they want you to be zealous for them. They want to shut you out, so you're only zealous for them. And Paul clarifies. Don't get me wrong. Zeal is a good thing if the object of that zeal is a good thing. Zeal for zeal's sake is not necessarily good. I mean, Hitler was very zealous for evil, wicked purposes. So zeal is not neutral. And these false teachers were very zealous, but their zeal was aimed at teaching that was destroying the Galatian church. See, as a side note, that passages like this are common in the New Testament when you talk about false teachers. This church that Paul had originally preached the gospel to has been caught up in this false teaching. See, friends, it's not the obvious false teachers we have to watch out for. It's the 
zealous ones. It's the smooth ones. It's the ones that are able to convince massive numbers of people, of very intelligent people, by just one degree off, two degree off. I mean, nautical and navigation type of things. One degree doesn't seem like much here, but 200 miles, 2,000 miles, 20,000 miles. It's an incredible amount of error. So these t- false teachers here are ending up convincing these people of this sub-biblical view. Now remember, Paul has already warned about these false teachers back in Galatians 1. And he told us there that they were preaching a different gospel. So what we see from these two passages then is how do you measure a false teacher? Does what they teach cause us to change the gospel? So let me give you an example of this. It happened in church history. In the third century, a teacher named Sibelius became pretty popular. He was gaining ground with his message. Sibelius taught that God was one person. But sometimes he revealed himself in different ways. So sometimes he revealed himself as a father, sometimes as a son, and then sometimes as, you know, a spirit. So notice something. Sibelius was wanting to honor the passages in the Bible that teach that God is one. There's a lot of passages that say that. His intention wasn't this crazy, devious plan. He, he He thought he was teaching the right thing. And yet, thankfully, in church history, the councils did what Paul said to do here in Galatians 1, And the church condemned this heretical view. Why? Because it changed the gospel. You see, friends, the gospel is Trinitarian at its core. If you lose the Trinity, you lose the gospel. The gospel is that the Father has chosen a people for himself. That the Son became incarnate, lived, and died for those whom the Father had chosen. And that Jesus rose from the grave according to the Father's plan and the Spirit's work. And the Father and Son send the Spirit to apply salvation to God's people. If Father and Son and Spirit are not co-equal persons in the Trinity, then the biblical gospel is lost. So how do you measure false teaching? You see, does it change the gospel? Practically, then, this means we need to be growing in our understanding of the gospel and of all the doctrines which overlap with the gospel. I'm so thankful for Alan's heart for systematic theology And that class, encourage you to go to that class. Now, I haven't talked to him, but I think if enough of you encouraged him, he might kick it off again. Uh, But it is so important that we understand each one of those areas of truth which overlap with the gospel, which change the gospel. So backing up, Paul has pressed on the fact that zeal aimed at the right target is good, and we need to keep that in mind for this last little metaphor he uses, which is a rather strange word. One more time, verse 19 and 20. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed. Did you catch that metaphor? Paul says he's in labor, but not just any labor. He had gotten to the point where he felt I was done giving birth, and then he realized, no, I'm not. I, I have to give birth again until when? Until Christ is formed in you. So do you see the point? If you want to see what good works really look like, if you want to see what zeal, the right zeal is aimed at, it's to see Christ formed in those. It is to see Christ dwelling in true believers more and more. So members of TGC, this is the same calling we each have in each other's lives. To disciple each other, laboring in loving each other and pointing each other back to Christ until he is fully formed in each one of us. So Paul is perplexed, though. That word could be translated, he he doubts. He's at a loss. He doesn't know. 
whether or not they genuinely are believers. And so this section ends on this note of warning and, and of worry and of concern. And on that note, Paul transitions to one final illustration, seeking to press on this reality that by resubmitting to elements of the Mosaic Law Covenant, they are also going back into slavery and bondage. Or to put it this way, that if you misread the grand narrative of the Bible, you'll misunderstand what the Mosaic Covenant was doing in the story of the Bible. And so that brings us to the covenantal allegory in 21 through 31. Let's read these verses one more time. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of a slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So Paul begins with this question in verse 21. In order to show them that they do not understand the law as they think they do. So this is why Paul writes in verse 22... For it is written. In other words, I'm going to explain to you what is written, what is, what is in the, the Bible, the law, their Bible, the Old Testament. And Paul is going to show them the right way to read it. His argument circles back to chapter 3, verse 7, where Paul had written, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Here's what I think is going on. I think the false teachers were giving this message to the Galatian Christians. They were saying, look, The sons of Abraham were were circumcised and were given the Mosaic Law Covenant. So if we want to be true sons of Abraham, we too need to be circumcised and adhere to the Mosaic Law Covenant. And it's like, oh yeah, I mean, that that makes sense. Because Paul had told us we're true sons of Abraham, right? So so that makes sense. We need to do what they did and go back under the Mosaic Law. Well, Paul counters their false teaching lesson with a lesson on how to read the Old Testament correctly. He says, well, time out. Abraham had two sons. But first of all, Abraham had the one son born of a slave woman of his own effort, whereas the second son was the son of promise. In other words, being any old son of Abraham wasn't enough. Only through Isaac, only through the child of promise were the sons of Abraham to be counted. It reminds me of Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees. Remember, we are sons of Abraham. Jesus is like, big deal. God can make these rocks sons of Abraham. It's being the right sons of Abraham, the right kinds of sons of Abraham, right? And so here Paul says, he speaks of Hagar as the free, uh, as the, and the, the free woman and these two covenants. And he says, this may be interpreted allegorically. And then we have some of the strangest verses in the New Testament. Uh, let's see if we can untangle this a little bit. 
allegory. Ah, that's, a, that's a challenging. What do you do with this term allegory? The, the NIV and the CSB translate it. These things are being taken figuratively. That could be. The Greek word is allegorumena. You hear allegory. You hear it in there. The problem is when we think of allegory, we think of reading something and then giving it a spiritual meaning or a special meaning. Uh, if you go back and read some of Philo and he, re- he reads the Old Testament and he-, he gives you interpretations that you're like, there's no way in the world that's what Moses was talking about. So what does it mean? Well, the, the Greek lexicon, the bdag, the kind of the gold standard says this, it's to use an analogy. It is a likeness to express something. Which is to say, we know Paul is not giving us some wild-eyed allegorical reading because he brackets the entire discussion in verse 22 and verse 27 with what? What does Scripture say? For it is written. So again, Paul thinks that his reading is the faithful biblical reading. That if you want to read the text right, you've got to read it like Paul. And he sees a number of contrasting pairs. Well, what are those contrasting pairs? Well, again, he says he saw that Abraham had two sons. One with a slave woman, one with a free woman. One of the flesh, one of the spirit. Uh, and moreover, he contrasts his child born to the slave woman who did not receive the inheritance with a child born to the free woman who did receive the inheritance. But not only that, Paul, in responding to these false teachers, it seems, sees two covenants, which are also juxtaposed. He says, well, the Mosaic Law Covenant was incapable of granting the blessings and the inheritance which the Abrahamic covenant did grant. So he goes throughout the Old Testament, and he says, oh, there's another set of pairs. Throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms and the prophets, you'll read of Jerusalem, idolatrous, horrible Jerusalem, about ready to be judged, Jerusalem. But then you read of Mount Zion, this this redeemed, beautiful city. And there's two pictures of Jerusalem given too. The Jerusalem below, sinful, caught in rebellion and idolatry, and the Jerusalem of promise, with all the blessings and inheritance that the Abrahamic covenant promised. So what Paul does is he sees these pairs, and he says, don't you see this pattern that is worked out in the Old Testament? That when you read the narrative arc of the, of the story, this pattern is very important. And so that's where he gives us this allegory, or this analogical reading. He says, Hagar and those under the Mosaic law covenant are analogous to present Jerusalem. It's an illustration of all those who are under the curse, all those who are in bondage, because they still think the Mosaic Law Covenant can get them the blessings of Abraham and the inheritance of Abraham, but it can't. He says, but the Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem of promise, the Jerusalem of faith, well, that's the free Jerusalem. That's our mother. We are those sons of Abraham. And then in verse 27, he quotes from Isaiah 54.1 to strengthen his case. Now, 54.1 is a passage where uh, the people of God are portrayed as a barren woman. And he says, but she's a barren woman who's married to God. And in fact, verse 5 of that passage goes on to say, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. So he pulls on that passage because there's the same picture of a wife and a husband, God being the husband, but a barren wife. Later on in that same passage, it also uses this imagery of Jerusalem, of of the city. 
Except for it's not the earthly fallen city, it's the city of promise. The, the Mount Zion picture of Jerusalem. Are you beginning to see the pattern that Paul sees in the Old Testament? Sarah was barren, and yet God gave her Isaac, the child of promise. And after the exile, Jerusalem was God's barren city. But God promised that one day he would fill Zion. In Isaiah 19, the beautiful picture of there'll be a highway that runs from Assyria to Egypt, and they will flow in, and Israel a third, and Assyria a third, and Egypt a third. It's this beautiful picture that God will fill this barren city when he brings about the promises of Abraham. It's all right there. This is why the author of Hebrews will go on to write about when Christians gather for worship, we have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Same theme. And then the final analogy that Paul makes is that just as the child of flesh, Ishmael, persecuted the child of promise, Isaac, back in Abraham's day, the same thing is happening today. These false teachers are Abraham's kids. They're Abraham's kids of the curse. They're Abraham's kids with Hagar. They're Abraham's kids of bondage and slavery and false worship under the Mosaic Law Covenant. Do you see how this argument now unfolds? Paul is essentially saying the false teachers want to put you back under the Mosaic Law Covenant, but to go back under its stipulations is to go back into bondage. So Paul has been showing them these contrasting patterns and how it supports his reading of the Old Testament. And his reading sees the Mosaic Law Covenant, the whole package, as being always only temporary and transitional in God's plan of redemption. The false teachers were reading it as critical, crucial, needing to apply right now. Paul says, no, it was temporary for a period of time then. That was his answer. Well, two weeks ago, Samuel showed us, well, then why? If the plan all along was the promise, then why this, this temporary bit in the middle here? Well, Sam showed us in Galatians 3.19. It's because of transgression. The law was brought in because of transgression. That was his purpose. The law served to restrain sin until Abraham could, the promises of Abraham could be fulfilled with the seed, the offspring we read in Galatians 3, which is Jesus Christ, right? According to Paul, then, a proper reading of the Old Testament is to see the Mosaic Law Covenant as temporary with the specific aim of curbing sin until Jesus came. Now, there are some Christians who would disagree. They would see the Mosaic Law as having continuing validity today. Uh, some would even believe that the Mosaic Law uh, contains laws that should be used today in shaping our modern judicial systems. I just do not believe that that fits with these passages in these two chapters. Uh, an another passage, and many you could look at, but years ago, Chris preached a great sermon on Matthew 5, 17 through 21, dealing with these same types of ideas. Paul's understanding is that the Mosaic Law Covenant is actually exactly in line with Jesus' understanding as well. In Matthew 19, 1 through 11, you remember the passage? The Pharisees come to test Jesus, and they say, oh, you know, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus responds, not by going back to Moses. He goes back to creation. He goes back and says, no, no, no. God created them, man and woman, and they are to be joined together and in covenant forever. The Pharisees respond, then why did Moses command him to give her a divorce? You see, the Pharisees are doing what the false teachers are doing. They're reading the law like this positive moral requirement. But Jesus corrects them. No, no, Moses permitted it. 
because of the hardness of your heart. The law served to restrain sin. Jesus and Paul are saying the Mosaic law covenant was never meant to be eternal. It was always only temporary. Its aim was the limiting of sin. Oh, of course, it also had all the regulations for worship. That is very true, yes, in the priesthood. But Jesus is our great high priest. That's why in John 4, Jesus says that now the only way to worship God is to worship in spirit and truth. And that builds on John 3. The only way to worship God is to be regenerate, to be born again of water and spirit, as he said to Nicodemus in chapter 3. The only true worship of God that takes place on this planet is when regenerate believers praise God in spirit because they're filled with the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word. So I realize we've walked through quite a bit of theology in these last few minutes in Bible, but there are important reasons for doing so because all of scripture is God-breathed and it applies to us today. So let's consider a couple points of application. So first, Paul's argument here means this. That even biblical truths, when decontextualized and misapplied, can lead to spiritual bondage and slavery. So what are some decontextualized truths that can lead us into bondage? I mean, many, many could be listed. But let's consider one that speaks to our current cultural moment. It is absolutely true that Christians have been called to be good and informed citizens. We should be those who seek to bring our Christian worldview into the public arena and square. It should shape our voting. It should shape our citizenship. But I must say that I have been worried with how many Christians I've heard speaking and acting as though this election is going to be Armageddon. This is the end. That what happens on November 3rd is it. We are either going to completely fall apart and lose our access to God or else. Now, of course, that's a little hyperbolic. But I must say, it does concern me. And sometimes these flames are even stoked more with conspiracy theories or maybe arguably conspiracy theories that go around. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, and particularly for those of you who would join me in us identifying as Reformed Christians, either God is sovereign or he's not. Of course there are consequences to the election. Every election has consequences. But do not miss the, the point. Paul wrote many of his letters while unjustly imprisoned. Arguably, the most culture and world-shaping literature ever written was from the place of unjust suffering. Under an emperor, an empire, who would eventually kill him. So following Paul's example of how to read the Bible as a grand narrative, we see that one of the central themes of the Bible story is God's glory in salvation through judgment. Uh, Jim Hamilton has written uh, has written an exceptional biblical theology that, with that title, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. In, in the book, he walks through every book of the Bible, and he shows you how that theme of God's glory in salvation through judgment unfolds. I highly recommend it. It's great to walk through w- with your devotions. But I bring this up to say this. What if, what if God is bringing judgment? What if God is bringing difficult times in order to display his glory? in the salvation of many, many people in this country? What if the difficult days ahead are going to be God reaping a harvest? Either God is sovereign or he's not. Either God uses the means of even bad elections and candidates and rulers to accomplish his will of glorifying his name in salvation through judgment, or he doesn't. 
But friends, first and foremost, our, may our response to these things be prayer and trust. Trust that God is in control, that he is working out all things according to the counsel of his will, as the confessions say. Prayer, trusting in his faithfulness. Of course, we also pray for our rulers, 1 Timothy 2, of course. But even those prayers are shaped by God's will, by God's plan. So brothers and sisters, don't let the truth of our calling to be faithful citizens overshadow the reality of God's providence in this moment. Don't allow the worries about what might bring hardships cause us to doubt doubt that God has chosen a people for his name. Jesus became incarnate and lived and died for those people, and the Holy Spirit continues to apply salvation to those people. And nothing, no political party or pandemic or anything else can change that. Or to put it differently, Jesus said he will build his church. So friends, we will either be with Jesus, trudging through whatever difficult days might come ahead, as he builds his church, or we will flee from his mission that he is accomplishing. A second point of application. Notice what Paul's argument from these chapters demonstrates. That we must understand the whole Bible. The individual parts have to fit within the grand narrative. Specifically, his arguments revolving around the Mosaic Law Covenant. Uh, That if you read it wrong, if you don't set it within the overarching context of the Bible storyline, then it will be misapplied. And in the Galatian case, that misapplication was the loss of the gospel. And as we've said, the false teachers, it's not that everything they said was false. They were holding high part of the old covenant, the Mosaic law. Yes, that's true. That is absolutely good. But because they misunderstood how the Mosaic law functioned in the story, they misapplied it. So the question I want to ask us this morning is this. How does our passage fit into God's grand narrative? How do you read this kind of unique allegory and this this charge of these people to live in freedom and not go back into bondage? How do you apply that to our day? Well, there's many ways of doing it. But at one level, we follow Jesus' reading of the Bible. In John 5, 39, he says, You search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, but these testify about me. Or we might say this, Since the whole Bible is bending around the cradle and the cross and the crown, How does this passage fit into that story arc? Well, I want to focus on one claim that Paul makes regarding the Jerusalem above, the free Jerusalem is our mother. Many others that we could could look into. But as I said, go read through the Psalms and through through the prophets, and you'll find this comparison and contrast. And there's these, these incredible hopes and pictures of the Jerusalem above, the free Jerusalem. In the intertestamental period, they they already started talking of a heavenly Jerusalem which, as we've said, the New Testament authors would pick up. It's most fully unpacked in Revelation 21 and 22. And it is described as a glorious city coming down from heaven, adorned with every jewel and precious stone imaginable. And we read these words of comfort, speaking of what this heavenly Jerusalem accomplishes for God's people. John writes this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Friends, does this vision of our true and lasting eternal city shape your thinking about politics and pandemics? Does your longing to experience the day when the dwelling place of God is with man cause you to hold lightly to this world? The fact that that vision in the final day says that he will wipe away our tears means we are going to have tears. There's going to be sorrow and suffering. There'll be trials. There will be losses. But he will wipe away our tears. So friends, our job as fellow church members is to constantly do two things. On the one hand, we point each other back to the cross work. As Paul's argument throughout this whole book so far has been, Jesus is enough. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. To add anything is to destroy the gospel. But we not only point ourselves back to that truth, but we point ourselves forward. We look ahead because we have a sure hope that the king is coming. And when he returns, he will make all things new. So I love that we sang this morning, When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone and faultless to stand before the throne. Because on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Friends, it was for freedom, freedom that Christ has set us free. So may we stand in freedom and rest in the reality that his ultimate freedom is yet to come when he wipes away tears and he makes all things new. Would you pray with me?